Hello and welcome to another podcast of Father and Joe. I'm Joe Rocky here with Father Boniface Hicks. And Father, I actually wanted to go back to another Bible passage to dive into for today's podcast because it it just appeared in one of the or correction in a special mass um, that was in the devotion to Mary that I was at, and it's it's a story of of the wedding at Cana. And it just seems that Jesus comes across as, as kind of harsh to his mom, the way that he's talking to her during that. And I just wanted to to dive into that because I'm assuming it's a translation thing with the way that it went from the way it was written into English. The fact that, you know, he just calls her woman. He tells her it's not his time. He kind of feels like he's blowing off Mary. And then he essentially begrudgingly changes the water and the wine. So something makes me got the feeling that that general interpretation is probably wrong. And that's hmm. why I wanted to use this, uh, this platform to straighten it out. Because like I said, just sitting there listening in the pews to it being read, that was how it came across. And it was a mask pretty much devoted to Mary and it didn't really make sense. So with that being said, I wanted to, uh, to allow you to straighten me out here. Yeah, thanks, Joe. It's a it's a beautiful passage, and it is one of those that uses some some language that requires a little bit of interpretation. The, the church is always in this kind of conundrum about these passages in the Bible. That on the one hand, you want to give the language that's closest to the actual kind of literal translation because words take on a certain meaning. Uh, and as you see them reappearing in different places in the Bible, we draw conclusions about that, that there's a kind of intentional connection between different passages and words are the point of connection. So mm-hmm. we want to have a consistent translation that's close to the original text. On the other hand, when we do that, it can also make things a little bit challenging when there are sort of weird expressions or things that we wouldn't say in English and then we kind of wonder what's going on there. We're in danger of applying our own uh, ideas to it in a way that then develops a weird theology. And so anyway, the church is always kind of in this tension. And so we do need uh, a proper interpretation, an authentic interpretation. And in some cases, and, and partially the homily provides that, of course, if the the minister, the priest, deacon, bishop in the homily spent the whole time explaining everything about every passage, we'd never get anywhere, you know. Mm-hmm. So um, so anyway, it's great that you bring it up here. This is a wonderful setting for us to explore uh, points like that, that particular passage. I'm just going to bring that passage up. Uh, in front of me here, and then we can refer to the actual quotations. The the little dialogue with with Jesus. First of all, it's it's interesting to see. Just to give you an example of how rich and intricate these biblical texts are, and the kinds of things we miss. The passage begins on the third day. There was a marriage at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. And that on the third day is like, 
where the heck did that come from? I mean, mm -hmm. on the third day, what? On the third day, from what? You know, and we should ask those kinds of questions. We should be perplexed by those little phrases. Everything is meaningful. Everything is intentional when it comes to sacred scripture. We may not get the answer to that uh, just by thinking about it, but when we hold those questions, when we carry those around, eventually we run into some things. And one explanation of that, of course, the first thing we think of when we say the third day, well, when do we use that phrase throughout the scripture? The third day. On the third day, he rose again from the dead, right? We mm -hmm. profess that every every mass in the creed. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. Wow, I wonder if there's a connection there. And in fact, when we start to scratch a little deeper, we see that that marriage, that marriage is really important. On the third day, there was a marriage. And on the third day, when Jesus rose again, he came forth as the bridegroom. There was a marriage. That is the new Adam who comes forth to marry his bride, the new Eve, who is the church. And that church is also represented in a particular way by Our Lady. She's the center of the church. Anyway, just to make the comment, I could spend the entire rest of the podcast talking about uh, the marriage and uh, the divine wedding feast and the divine bridegroom and have an understanding of how marriage is really the uh, ultimate expression of, of what heaven is, that heaven is, is a marriage ultimately between God and man. So anyway, just to say on the third day, which makes us think of the resurrection, there was a marriage, which should also make us think of the resurrection. And we see that being played out. Another point that that on the third day uh, connects with is in John's gospel, which this is taken from John chapter two in John's gospel, his beginning uh, is, the, very, the, the first verse of John's gospel is, in the beginning. Now, that phrase, to begin a gospel with that phrase, in the beginning, everybody who reads that, who knows the scripture, who knows the Old Testament, thinks immediately, oh, like Genesis. Mm -hmm. Again, keeping those phrases, keeping those words consistent is really important so that we make those connections. Oh, this is like Genesis, in the beginning. So we're on the first day. And then as we read through chapter one of John's gospel, there is a on the next day, on the next day, on the next day, and now on the third day. So what we also have in John chapter two is on the third day is the kind of seventh day of the new creation. On the third day is the day that in the original creation, Adam was created on the sixth day and God rested and Adam went into a deep sleep, which implies that a day passed. And on the seventh day, Eve showed up, drawn from the side of Adam. So on the seventh day of creation was likewise a wedding. And so we're, we're reconnecting all of these dots. Mm -hmm. There's a lot, of, a lot of wonderful things going on. And again, I just say that to show how, how rich these scriptures are. And how whenever we're coming up with kind of simplistic interpretations, we always need to be have a little bit of doubt, like, really? And that's what I love, too, about your question, Joe, is that you heard this and you were like, that sounds, you know, like Jesus is just sassing his mother. Mm -hmm. There must be something else going on there. I love that. That's great intuition, great Catholic intuition, I could say, that, yeah, there's always more going on. So just to say... 
already in verse one, I've only read four words of verse one, you know, and, and uh, we've got a lot of rich things going on. But it says the, there was a wedding. The mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the marriage with his disciples. When the wine failed, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, and this is where uh, this this phrase, to translate it directly from Greek, to try and interpret it, is just kind of a mess. But uh, woman, he says, oh woman. And that has a, a number of important things that are related to it. The the word in Hebrew, if you translated John chapter two into Hebrew, it would be it would be Apha, it would be Eve. Oh Eve. Now remember how I said we're already making the connection on the third day would be the seventh day of creation, would be the day of the wedding feast, would be the day that Adam met Eve in creation. So we're at a marriage. We know that Jesus is the new Adam and Mary is standing in in this context, not so much as his mother, but as the face of the church, the bride, at a wedding feast, which is not just the wedding of some bride and bridegroom who are never mentioned, really, in this passage, but is really the eternal wedding feast that we're thinking about, that we're reflecting on, that we're pointing toward. So Our Lady is standing in a different position. So Jesus isn't, it's not disrespect, it's, it's pointing now they're doing, they're carrying out kind of prophetic, symbolic actions that are pointing to something else. And Mary is pointing to something else. She's pointing to the church, the, the ultimate bride. And so when he says woman, he's not being disrespectful to say, you know, call his mother woman. Mm-hmm. But, he's, but she is the woman, the kind of quintessential woman, the redeemed woman. And then he says what does this concern have to do with with me? Actually, the Greek is, what is it to you, what is it to me? Or what it is to you, what is it to me? It's it's a really weird phrase in Greek that if you read 10 translations of this passage, you'd find 10 different translations. But the essence of what he's saying is, you know, like how – Okay, what is what is your what does your request have to do with she hasn't actually said anything yet. She just said they have no wine. And he's saying, Okay, what what does this have to do with me? Mm-hmm. What what are you saying? You know, what are you asking me? Another way that you could translate this though, which is interesting, and, and this is where there are a lot of meanings going on at the same time. You know, Jesus is God and he's a master of words. <laughs> Another way you can translate this is what it is to you, it is to me. In other words, your wish is my command. What, what do you want? What do you want from me? What do you want? Mm-hmm. You know. So there's a anyway. There's a, there's sort of a lot of things going on there at the same time that are hard to translate in a in a single translation. And then he explains further, my hour has not yet come. Now in John's Gospel again, that word hour is speaking of the hour of his passion. Later on in uh, John 12, I believe, he says, my hour has come. Now the passion begins. Now I'm entering into the very purpose for my coming as man. Now I'm entering into the hour of my total self-offering. When Jesus talks about the hour, his hour has not yet come. He's talking about 
the hour of his passion. And again, we can get into so much stuff here, but the wedding feast of the Lamb is consummated on the cross. And Jesus gives his body, this is my body, given up for you. He pours out everything on the cross. So that's the full purpose of his mission. And basically what we're hearing right now is uh, Jesus' public ministry has not yet begun. He hasn't done anything yet. And in a certain sense, once he starts his public ministry, it's, it's going to aim, it's going to drive without stopping, without hesitation. It's going to drive towards the cross. It's going to drive toward that hour of his passion. And what he's telling us and what he's telling uh, Mary here is we haven't started yet. He's reminding her, you know, and, and what we actually understand after the fact is that before Jesus began his public ministry, he lived an, a completely ordinary human life such that his neighbors didn't know that there was anything special about him, right? They react when he comes out in the synagogue and says, I am the Messiah. They're like, what in the world? Who is this? What are you talking about? We grew up with you. We know your cousins. We know your family. We know, like, who are you, right? Mm -hmm. He has never done anything extraordinary for the first 30 years of his life. And now he's on the verge of his first miracle, a miracle that's initiated by Our Lady. And he's saying, like, do you know what you're saying? <laughs> by initiating this, it will begin. This is the beginning, which will drive toward that hour of the passion. And then she acknowledges that by turning to the servants and saying, do whatever he tells you. So again, she leaves it in his hands. But she has initiated this. She has initiated his public ministry. She has said, I'm ready to receive everything that you want to give. And so Mary is also entering into a new role from the role of being his mother, which she was for the first 30 year, years of his life. She is now becoming his first disciple and she is becoming the center of the bride, the church. She's really uniting more deeply with us and is standing in the midst of us, and she's saying, I'm ready to receive all of the love that you will pour out from the cross. I'm ready to begin this journey, your public ministry, which is going to end in crucifixion. So she's really initiating that, ultimately leaving the decision to him, do whatever he tells you. And then he says to the servants, fill the jars with water, and he works the miracle. He makes the new wine, the wine of the Old Testament, we could say, has run out, those six jars, and, and then he's filling up those, uh, those empty jars with water, and he makes them wine. So anyway, there's a lot of richness. You can see I'm just touching on so many different mm -hmm. things. I could spend several conferences talking about this. But, but just to focus on your point, Joe, one of the reasons often when we have passages in Scripture that are a little bit more obscure, the it's often because there are so many things going on that it takes some time to tease them all out. And it's because they're really presenting mysteries to us that it's important for us to just kind of sit in and soak up and we'll never exhaust them. We'll never reach the bottom of them. So rich and intricate. 
Yeah, so I maybe this one's a little bit not as, as deep as the, some of the things you just went through there. But just from that interaction you were talking about, are you sure you want me to do this? You know, it's going to completely change Mary's life as well. That's never really articulated. But Absolutely. in a sense, she goes from just having a normal everyday son with a normal everyday job to now having, I mean, obviously there's a lot more to this, but essentially a pop icon of the day as her kid. You know, everyone's talking about Jesus. They're going around and going out of their way to pilgrimage to, to him as you get to later on in the Bible when they're meeting him on the mountains with the fishes. So people are going out of the way to see him. And she just went from a lady doing her own thing, minding her own life, to now being the mother of of the most important person around. And that by itself has to have massive changes to her everyday life as well that are never really articulated. Um, and, and I guess that that warning makes sense. Like you think about how much your life's going to change. I understand that you're telling me this on a much deeper spiritual level as far as now the church can begin, but there's also mm-hmm. a, a certain amount of her real life is is going to alter for the foreseeable future now. No, you're right on the mark, Joe. And uh, we can think of that prophecy of Simeon in the presentation in the temple when he says to Mary that your own heart will be pierced by a sword that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. And this is, in a way, the beginning of Mary's passion. This is, uh, she, she gets distanced in a way, instead of being the, the one that Jesus has entrusted himself totally to, a baby in a mother's arms or in a mother's womb, she starts to take some distance he has to distance himself from her so that he can make room for everyone else. And that's where we get some of those other passages where your mother and your brothers are looking for you. And he says, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Those who hear the word of God and do it. Now, he's distancing himself from her in a way, in particular, in order to make room for all of those who, in fact, she is the one who hears the word and does it the most. And so he is, in fact, honoring her by saying that. But he's also putting her in the place of a disciple and in the center of the church. And he's inviting others to be like her. And likewise, when the woman shouts out, blessed are the breasts at which you nursed and the womb that bore you. And Jesus says, more blessed are those who uh, hear the word of God and, and keep it or something like that. And, and he's, so again, he's distancing himself from her and she suffers that. She suffers that distance, and ultimately she will suffer the, the distance of the passion, his death. She'll suffer that distance. And so, but she does that to make room for us, to make room for everyone. And so as he becomes more popular, there are more people in between him and her is kind of what you were saying. And she suffers that, but she suffers that in order that men, the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed that many of our hearts may be opened, that many of us may be touched by, by him, by her son, by his ministry. Yeah, and that's, that's a lot to it there. Uh, yeah. so, so something that I didn't really fully understand has so many layers to it. And one of the other ones that I wanted to touch on that you mentioned there was 
the why they had to go through all the wine and the servant going to the bridegroom in this that you're right they don't mention his name saying why did you give us all the bad wine up front and save all the good stuff for the end that doesn't make any sense why'd you do that and and the bridegroom's like what i have no idea what you're talking about um you know i think that that is a uh an important part of this too that's you know obviously past the part where he's talking to his mother but kind of the conclusion of uh, of this portion of the bible yeah and again this is all pointing to things with much greater meaning than simply uh, uh, a miracle at a at a wedding the emptying out of wine wine throughout the scriptures is a symbol of joy of celebration uh, of peace of happiness, of fulfillment, of, you know, you drink the wine when the good things have happened. You don't drink the wine in the midst of the war. You know, you don't drink the wine when there's, you're in the midst of mourning. But, but you drink the wine when the conclusion, at the conclusion, at the celebration, when the good thing has finally happened. You know, so it's a sign of joy, of arrival. Um, and so the fact that the wine has run out, and again, we're, essentially here on the, at the end of the Old Testament, that the wine of the Old Testament, the wine of, of Israel, the wine has run out, the joy, the celebration, it's, it's run its course. And uh, because of the sins of the people, their infidelity, the broken covenants, the, uh, and ultimately the kind of limitations of the Old Covenant, the wine has run out. And, and Mary is the one who identifies that. Jesus not only gives new wine, he doesn't kind of put us back where we started from. He doesn't renew the old covenant. He doesn't even promise us paradise. He takes us beyond that. And so the wine that he produces, which is in superabundance, he ends up creating 120 gallons of wine. Mm -hmm. And that wine is of outstanding quality, better than they ever had. And that's a, a sign of what he has done in the broad sense, taking the Old Testament to the New Testament. The New Testament is not just a regurgitation of the Old Testament, but it actually is far exceeds it. Heaven is not just a recovery of the paradise of Adam and Eve. It far exceeds it. It's more than we ever had. And that's how God is. When we make a mistake, our tendency, or when someone betrays us, our tendency is to trust them less. But when we betray God, his tendency is to give us more. And that's just so backward from our reasoning. But again, all of that is symbolized in this, in this wedding feast, that God has saved the good wine till now. He has more for us than he ever had. And so we don't need to be afraid of uh, even of our wine running out. God always has more, and it's even better than it was before. And then actually a little nuance on that uh, part about trusting it. Um, there's a psychological phenomenon, I'm blanking on it right now, but something that I remember from back in the day. If you mess up with someone and you already had a strong trusting relationship, you actually will become closer to that person after the the issue has been resolved. But if you never had a strong, close relation to them, you become more distant, just as you had mentioned. But mm -hmm. if you think of it, if you like one of your really good friends goes down and, and and gets into an accident or something, 
you would have a different perspective than if it was just two people you didn't know. And that's just the way that the human brain's designed for whatever reason, part of the interconnection of, of people. So, you know, that's, that's just a thought of something that, that Jesus is essentially at the good friends with everyone stage. And God is that he's not going to push you away. You know, it's just a, a thing with psychology that that's proven and tested many times. And, and I don't even remember the, the official name of the, the phenomena to be able to cite it, but I do remember reading a bunch of studies of it uh, back whenever I was doing, doing my training to get, get where I am in sales. So, but nonetheless, that, that is a thing that, that just kind of struck me as you were saying that, that the only way you get to that level of having trust or becoming closer to someone after something awry is gone is you already have to be good friends and trusting each other in the first place, which in a sense is the implicit love of God coming through, through a human perspective. So that was mm. I said, my, my thought on I think a little nuances. You've been nuancing me this whole time um, mm. on something no, you, you just said there. So, and, and how but, important for you in sales and in contracting, you know, people are going to make mistakes. And you want to have enough of a relationship that you can just say, yeah, mea culpa, you know, sorry, I made a mistake here and I'm really sorry. I'm going to make it up to you and we're going to do better next time. And that can actually form a tighter bond if there's a foundation to work with. Yeah, it it absolutely does. And I can think about um, various times it's happened. You know, we have a, you know, I'm obviously not at the site every single day. I got to be out running other projects. So I've had a crew that the first time they were working with me put this pipe in the 100% worst spot. Like it's coming down totally in the middle of the room, destroys the entire land of what we want to do. And it caused an issue Then I have another crew. I don't know, eight months later that I'd work with now multiple times. He does something similar. And I'm like, Jeff, what are we doing here? And it was, it was just a completely different reaction on my part and feeling that you could all say it's because I already went through it once. I figured out how to fix it. I'm just rinse and repeating the same solution. But I also think there's another strong part of it is I'd already been, I've been, been in enough working with Jeff that we already have enough relation that, you know, I, it, it's, it's set that we can work together in that capacity rather than someone new who literally was on the job for about four days when he did this. So that's that's the difference there. So this being said, this episode went a little bit longer than some of our others. We do thank everyone for listening out there. We will be again here with you next week. And please follow us on Twitter, at Father and Joe, and retweet us whenever we send out the new episode updates. Thank you guys for listening, and we'll be with you next week.